Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bazdick Media Network. I am your host, Keith Revere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. Uh, one of my goals in life is to bring awareness to the horrendous conditions in prison facilities here uh, in America. Around the world too, but you know, I focus specifically here in America. It's that you know, punishment-minded, um, negative reinforcement style where they don't care if you're rehabilitated. Uh, prisons, like we talked about numerous times, especially in Arizona um, and, and many, many others, but Arizona is one of the worst where you, the food um, is packaged with a label that says not for human consumption. It's the kind of quote-unquote meat they make the bad dog food with and the bad cat food with. Uh, that's what they eat, the Red Death, as they call it, and some other uh, horrendous nicknames for this food. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's part of what I do. I also bring uh, to the table some men and women of notoriety, if you will. Uh, today we're going to be speaking again with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. We're going by one by one through you know, all, the, all his victims and some other stuff, too. Today we're going to take a little bit of a, a detour, uh, as we're, me and Keith were talking. Um, to get to know more about him. Again, this is the lighter side of serial killers, not just about the crimes. In fact, in most cases, it's really getting to know them as a human being. Uh, some things that shaped uh, who he is, uh, how he ended up that way. We talk a little bit about that uh, in this episode, but in, a, in an upcoming episode, um, which I've already taped, uh, he really, the question was asked you know, about the mindset of killing. You know, something after a while was always on his mind. He never went out searching for somebody, but it was always he knew the possibility was always there. Um, and we hear going to hear the story about his dad possibly um, got in an accident with somebody and killed somebody. And his dad never really, really admitted it. But you will hear from Keith. You know what happened. And in his back of his mind, from right then, he knew. Well, if my dad can get away with killing somebody, maybe I can too. That stayed with Keith, and we're going to hear about that. But we're going to hear other stories, too. Now, he was a long-haul trucker, so we're going to hear some uh, trucking stories today um, and many other things. Um, then we'll continue on uh, talking about victims 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we'll hear your story eventually, give you a little tease that uh, one of the victims might have got up and walked away, and we'll hear about that uh, <laughs> in an upcoming episode. You might touch on it today, and we'll see. All right, so here we go. Keith Jesperson. And we were talking off, uh, before we were recording, off air, so to speak, um, that somebody in your facility recently came up to you and said uh, they knew you or knew where you used to work or something like that? He said I worked for his father as a welder up in Yakima. And um, I said the only the only way, only place I worked for as a welder was back in, like, September of 1983. I just moved back from Canada, and uh, I went to work for Russell Crane Service. And he told me, yeah, well, he, uh, he's the one that bought out Russell Crane Service. I said, well, okay, that, that, that's how, how I work for his dad. But uh, we got to talking about CeeLo Washington, where I, where I went to high school at, to find out that that, kid, that guy actually went to CeeLo as well. And he told me where he lived and off of McGonagall, which is up there by the new high school. And we get to really talking about things. And we get to talking about uh, people that we know. And... I told him, I said, there's one guy I really wanted to get a hold of, and that's a guy by the name of Ray, uh, uh, Brad Kickrick. And Brad Kickrick, and I told him, I said, I need to you know, talk to you to hold him. And he says, Brad, he said, oh, you mean the race car driver? And I said, well, yeah, he's a race car driver. He, he drives the oval track in Yakima. He also has a transmission shop in Yakima. He's very reputable. And uh, I went to high school with the guy, and then after high school, I moved in with him into the Seattle Apartments up by the motorcycle hill climbs. And we were really good, really good friends. And there's a lot to Brad, Kendrick, and I being friends. Um, a lot of things that happened in a short time that uh, affected my life. And uh, I guess the best thing I could do, do you remember when The Exorcist was shown? I think that was the first came out in 1974. Oh, sure. Yeah, oh, sure. Uh huh. Okay. Well, okay. So, so Brad was really scared of of scary movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm an asshole, you know. So I pick him up at eleven o'clock at night on Halloween night, and I take him to the Capitol Theater in Yakima for a midnight 
showing of The Exorcist. Oh, there's no way. I already bought the tickets. I already bought the tickets. And I, I drove them up there, and I was driving this 1974 Chevy Blazer. And uh, it was my dad's, and I parked it. And when we went inside, and we were, in, we were on a line to go in there, and he says, what movie are we watching? And I said, don't worry about it. Just, just go on inside. <laughs> <laughs> he looked up, and he saw The Exorcist. And said, oh, no way. I'm not going in. You had a left. Yes, you are. <laughs> you got to go in anyway, right? So we go in the theater, and we're sitting out. There's that one scene with the bed moves and all this. Oh, of I course. I look around, and Brad's gone. Brad's <laughs> gone. He's gone. He, he left. He goes out of the theater. He goes out in the, in the, in the, in the hallway out there, and he trembles. He's scared. He finally comes back in. He, he must have left the movie three or four times. <laughs> anyway, see, the movie gets over. It's about 2 in the morning, and we go back out to the blazer, and I just couldn't help myself. He's sitting there. And in the dark, and, and I got the I got the blazer running, and there's a pop can at my feet. I reach down and grab the pop can, and I throw it against the back window, and it just, he just goes on berserk, <laughs> right? He's about ready to climb out of his chair. And I take him back to his house. I, he goes back in there, and he turns the light on in his bedroom, and he go, and he, he's in there. I don't know if he slept that, at all that night, but I drove by a couple more times just to see, and his light was still on. <laughs> But, oh, that's you know, great. That, that was that was the, the one time I, I I screwed with him very bad. But when we lived in the Sela apartments, uh, that was I moved in with Sam in the spring of 1974. We moved in there, and there was, um, uh, and I know this because I bought a, a, a 1974 uh, Honda CB750 motorcycle, the, the orange one, and I moved in with Brad because I wanted to get away from my father, because, even though. I, I was still working for my dad, running a backhoe and dump truck business. And so we stayed in this. Now, one of the stupidest things there, like Brad did a little marijuana and stuff. He grew some marijuana at that time. I think most kids did in the 70s. But he, of all things, he went to the Emporium one day and he bought a plastic marijuana plant. And it looked real, right? And I said, what are you doing with that? And he stuck it in our front window. I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> People walk by and look at their stuff all the time. They look at this marijuana plant, right? <laughs> sure. So he just harvested about six plants in his bedroom, which were, went all the way to the ceiling. He, he just cut everything down and got rid of everything. And within a couple of days after he harvested his plants, uh, a cop knocks on our door and looks. And he's looking at this plastic plant. He thinks it's real. And he, he, he comes in, the local field cop, and he comes in and he points, points at the thing and says, What's that? I said, it's a plastic plant. He says, no, it's not. He reaches over and he sees it's plastic. All the cop was mad, but I was glad that he was, there was no marijuana. Movie. <laughs> but Brad, would, he started his transmission work on his car in, in our living room. He had sheets of, sheets of plastic down. When I came home from work, I'd come in and there'd be sheets, uh, sheets of plastic laying down on our carpet, and there'd be parts of his car inside our our apartment. Oh, wow. That's Everything crazy. was just scattered everywhere. And that's where he was <laughs> learning. He's a great guy. He really is. I mean, and I got along with his father real well. His father's Ray Tidrick. And um, Ray and I played the um, the pool league there in the Valley Bar League. We played eight ball, a partner eight ball, and nine ball. And uh, we took second place, I think, in 1986. We're, we're fairly good players. Ah, nice. And Ray and I kind of were, were really good friends. And Ray actually took my son and I fishing uh, up at Priest Rapids down. And he drove, he had a little Winnebago, about 25-foot Winnebago, and he hooked onto his boat. And we'd go on out there. We'd, we we back dragged eggs down, down there. We're looking for jacks. We're looking for jack salmon. But my son just so happened to catch two really good-sized Chinook salmon. And on the way back, now he thought that I put my son up to this, but I already did. My son, Jason, what a great kid, and he's probably a really great adult now. But uh, he, he was sitting there; he was really happy that he started. To, he goes up and he says, "Hey, Ray," and he said, "Yes, Jason." And he says, "I caught the mom on Papa fish. You got the baby fish, right?" And Ray just busts up and he says, "You you put your son up to this." <laughs> I said, "No, I didn't. I didn't do that. That's all on him, right?" So. That was that was a, it was comical and he kept bringing that up every time I every time I saw him he kept bringing it up the fact he swore to God that I put my son up to that but um, one of the things that you know that really was, it drives this this whole story is that 
while I was living at the Kilo apartments with, with uh, Brad, we had decided to go deer hunting over in Klamath, Washington. That's where Brad actually came from, in that area. And we were going to go over there and go uh, deer hunting, and I needed to borrow my dad's pickup truck. And uh, in order to borrow my dad's pickup truck, my dad required that I leave my CB750 Honda motorcycle with him. And my mother didn't want me to because my dad was a drunk, right? He, he, he drank alcohol all the time. And, and he, he said he wasn't an alcoholic, but he still also said he consumed a lot of alcohol. So I don't know how you, how you, how you define that. But yeah. he started drinking at 9 o'clock in the morning. He's still drinking at 9 o'clock at night when he puts it down. And oh, wow. His alcohol of choice is, is rye whiskey with Pepsi or cola. Oh, wow. In other words, us kids would drink half of a, a pop and, and then fill the rest up with rye and shake it and hand it to him. And that's what he drank. Jeez. So I have to leave my motorcycle with him. And my mother tried to say, no, don't do that because your father's going to get on that damn thing. He's probably going to kill himself on it. Well, we uh, we go hunting in Klamath, and uh, we're... we're we don't get anything, but we have a great time. And we come back, and we're back at our apartment. And on Monday morning, I go I go back up to my dad's house, and I start up the dump truck in the back. Oh, we're going to have to go dig a swimming pool that morning. And I had everything warmed up, ready to go, but my dad wasn't there. So uh, I walked over behind uh, my mom, uh, or their house, and I walked in the back, and I said, Hey, where's dad at? And he says, you and, that, and this is the first time I heard my mother swear. She says, you and that goddamn motorcycle <laughs> killed your dad. And I said, what do you oh, mean killed no. him? Said, well, he's in the St. Elizabeth Hospital, had two or three operations, and, and he's, he's almost on his deathbed. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, shit, really? And that's serious. You know, so I called the people I was going to dig the pool at and told them not today because I had to go deal with my father in the hospital. And I drove to the hospital, and I went in to see Dad. And he's all fucked up, right? He's looking at me, and I walk in, and he says, you've got to get to the bike and destroy the evidence. <laughs> and uh, I said, what evidence? And he said, well, the evidence, you know, the, the fact that you don't want the insurance company to know that he was out there drinking while he's riding, right? So I went and stopped by. I, I came back out of the hospital once, and I picked up my mom, and we went out to the where the wreck had happened. A farmer actually had my bike in his in his barn, and he used his front end loader to put it in the back of the pickup. And uh, we went and saw the crime, the, the crime scene, the, the accident. And uh, it was on a sweeping corner to the left, and he drifted off the side of the road into the in, under the shoulder and wrecked. He just crashed. So you can imagine what he had. He had a bottle of Pepsi in his left hand. Uh, his hand was on the throttle on the right hand. He couldn't determine whether he was going to drop the bottle oh, and no. steer the bike in the right direction <laughs> wow. or just hope for the best and hang on to his bottle of rye. You know, that's what drunks do. They hang on to the bottle. They don't They don't think about what's going to happen. And that's what ended up happening. He drifted off the road and hit the shoulder. Now, when he hit that, you know, I, I, we walked up to, to a few feet past where the bike had stopped and I picked up this bottle of Pepsi that would have some alcohol in it and I smelled it and I told my mom and she was all upset. So I dropped mom off. I went down to the Sheila uh, car wash. I threw gasoline all over the bike and for three minutes. Then I washed it all off, took it to the insurance company across the street to Farmers Insurance. And they said to take it to Poland Honda and, and Yakima Walker to get it fixed. Now, one of the things in, in the, the Honda shop in Yakima, Washington, called Poland's Honda, P-O-U-L-I-N-S, Poland's Honda. Every time, you take a, every time you bought a bike there, they'd take a picture, a Polaroid picture of you with the bike. So if the place is still open, I'm sure there's a couple of Polaroid pictures with me standing next to a bike. Oh, wow. Somewhere. Oh, yeah, for sure. Somewhere. You know. Someone will go over there. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> so I went there to drop the bike off, and everything's okay. And then we had gotten rid of all the uh, the bottle rye was out of the fairing. I took that out of the better fairing and all the other soda and shit like that. Make sure there was no evidence there. I went back to the hospital, walked in there, and said, "Okay, Dad, why were you drinking?" He said, "Did you get rid of the evidence?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I got rid of all of that." He said, "I wasn't drinking." 
what do you mean you weren't drinking? He said, I wasn't. There's no proof I was drinking, but I wasn't drinking. And I never, never want to hear about this again, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Smart. That was his idea. <laughs> now, because of the accident, because of the injury he sustained, he had to quit drinking. The medication forced him to give up alcohol oh, and it would have killed him. Okay. So it was one of those type of things. Now, it was really stupid. Now, I was living there in the field apartments, but I could no longer I could no longer live there because now, because my father was messed up, his eyesight was was screwed up, and he couldn't uh, he couldn't run a backhoe without tearing you know tearing things up. Uh, he had he, he had a patch on one eye, and 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 he had a problem with his stomach, and so I had to move back into the house because they couldn't pay me. I was running the family business. I was running the back, I was doing all the bidding and everything for the jobs, and then um, they couldn't pay me a wage, and so I had to give up the apartment. Now, later in life, you probably might have heard this, where my father said, well, I couldn't make it out in the real world. I had to move back in the house. Well, this is this is how I had to move back in the house, because he wouldn't allow me to, I had to be there to business answer the phone, and I had to take care of everything, and, and so that's why I, I had to move back in. It wasn't that I couldn't make it on the real world, it was I could make it if you just paid me a damn wage that yeah. I was working. Yeah. But but he couldn't. So all the money that I was making was going to pay for my brothers to go to college and, and to pay medical bills and so forth. So I moved back in, and when the motorcycle was fixed, I finally got my bike back. My father's standing there looking right at me. He says, you cannot live under my roof owning that motorcycle, pointing at the bike. It's, it's the motorcycle's fault now why he got in an accident. It's not my fault it's a motorcycle fault so i had to sell the bike so i sold the bike and the money that i made off the bike i had paid off the money that i made off the bike and i sold that money went into the household as well so i lost that Jeez. and then on the insurance on the on the bike no he he didn't want to put his homeowner's insurance on the line for the, the accident instead he put my my motorcycle insurance my insurance on the line, and I had to pay the deductible for him having an accident on my bike. <laughs> of course, he did. Oh. And that was that was the way. Now, so his insurance wouldn't go up. Say, so I had to pay the insurance. And my insurance went up because of his accident. And this is this is this is what I ended up having to deal with, right? Uh, in the years to follow, you know, I had good friends with with his his his, his dad, Ray Tigger. Uh, my dad had to move on. I had to, I had to quit uh, driving tobacco. I had to go through operations myself. I had to deal with that. But that was uh, that was to deal with with uh, with Kendrick there. So I'd lived with him, and we'd gone through this whole thing. And and, and I wanted to get. You know, I told the guy downstairs, you know, when I was at the laundry, I said, uh, "Man, I sure like to get a hold of his address. I'll write the guy and, and pick up where he left off. Hopefully." Yeah, but that's that what I was, was going to ask uh, you. When was the last was dealing with my dad? When was, was the last that? time? He, when's the last time you talked to him? Oh, I haven't talked to I haven't talked to Brad Tiddick in in uh, thirty years at least. Oh, it's been that long. Okay. Well, hopefully... yeah, it's been a long, long time. You know, it's been in uh, uh, the late eighties. I, I, I talked more. I talked more with his dad than I did with him. Uh, but yeah, but Brad Tiddick is a race car driver. He does the oval track. And then, of course, he has a transmission shop there in Yakima, and it's very reputable. And I always thought about just getting a hold of him just because we were friends. Now, one of my biggest regrets is the fact that my dealing with, with family and friends, and they happen to deal with the fact that I'm a convicted murderer in prison. And I think that's, it's, it's hard on them because they knew what kind of a person I was before. Sure. You know, I was I was this nice guy that was always there helping and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, now here I am with this, where I'm incarcerated. And that's, I think, the hard part. Now, one of the things with my dad that I had issues with is that fact that I remember I telling you or, or someone, he said that I had to teach my dad how to drive a truck. Yeah. Remember I told you yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Or try to. <laughs> I try to. Well, in... In 1980, there's a picture online. If, if you go online, there's a picture of me standing next to a truck. 
um, a, a freight liner and I got a bandage on one of my fingers, right? Oh, that's in front of the in front of the plum truck. I think I, I think I sent you that picture. Just so you yeah, can have the brown, it. the brown colored freight liner. Anyway, oh, the brown one. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. was taken when I was trying to teach my dad how to drive. Oh, it's funny because you pointed that out because that's one of my favorite pictures. And I thought that was your main truck, but it wasn't the plum one. He's like, yeah, if you look close, no, that was, I have that a. Was taken in 1987. Yeah, you're like, if you look close to that before picture, I have I killed a. Anybody. Yeah, before you said I that. killed anyone. That was in 1987. And you're like, if you look close, I have a little splint or something on my finger. I broke a finger. I'm looking at. Oh crap! Yeah, you, yeah, you do. <laughs> It's actually what happened. I snapped a tendon on the back of my finger, Ooh. and I used a pop stick, a popsicle stick, to to to, to hold it in, in in place while I drove. And then I went to a doctor, and the doctor says, "Well, you did exactly what I would." Have I was going to do. say that's usually all they do anyway. Because <laughs> I have to, all I have to do is heal that way, and that's what I did. So it has a little, has a little hook to it, but not no big deal. Yeah. But I, I I I did that while I was trying to tuck my father into bed in Wheat, California, when he was... So the premise of this was that my father thought that, you know, he, he always tried to inject himself in the businesses that I was working in. So when I was a welder up in the mine, up in Canada, he had to show up. And within, you know, a few days of doing that, I lost my job up there. And then, then I was running heavy equipment over in, in, in Lethbridge, Alberta. He shows up there and he, he talks a, a big game, and he, and he talks about being this great operator and stuff like that. But he didn't know how to run excavators. <laughs> you know, he, he talked a big game, but he wanted to be involved in this. Now, yeah. in 1987, when I started driving long haul, he came over to my boss, and he says he he, he talked himself into driving a, a driving job with me because he said he was going to look after the, the loads coming in, and he was going to get them unloaded and get them reloaded so the drivers could just, you know, spend more time with their family. And that was his push. That was his his point to push so that he could get in the truck with me. Sure. And I remember I was heading north, and I was going to go to Seattle and make my delivery, and then I, I called the boss. He says, oh, you got to swing by Toppenish and, and, and drop that trailer. Another guy's going to take it unloaded, but you've got to – I got a load, a hot load that has to be down in San Leandro, California the next morning, and you're going to have a co-driver with you. And I was like, who? <laughs> oh, no. And, and then he said, my father no. was co-driver, and I was like, that guy doesn't know how to drive. <laughs> you know, he, he drove a dump truck, okay, but he doesn't know how to shift. He doesn't understand. He's a design engineer that doesn't understand the concept of a clutch and RPM in a diesel rig. Oh, wow. You still have to use the RPM to run on. It, it, it's hard to explain, but uh, a gas motor, you can just jam the damn thing in and it'll go in with a clutch, whereas a diesel, you have to still play with the gears to get it in without rattling the gears. Well, he, he I show up to Chauffeur's, I drop the trailer, I grab another trailer, and I look right at him and I said, all right, Dad, drive it out of here and he says oh don't 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 make me do that because he'll know then i don't know how to drive right uh, <laughs> and yeah. i go like oh come on man <laughs> you're, you're putting me in on the spot yeah. i have to agree i just drove like 33 straight hours and now he wants he figures because i have a co-driver i can make it to my destination another another 16 hours down oh, the road without wow. any problem and here i have a my father has never driven a semi before in his life He's going to get in the truck with me, and he's going to help me. He's yeah. not going to help me. <laughs> I have. I could not go to sleep with him driving the truck. No, yeah. So I left. We left top, and as he got in, the, he got in the truck, and I drove out of the parking lot, and I made it down ninety seven, and and I pulled into a wide spot, and I said, "All right." I I, I went to the base. It's all right. Pull out under the roadway. He couldn't even get it out of the parking lot because he kept dropping the clutch and uh. and killing the damn motor. So. <laughs> I eventually, I, I drove out of the park, and I drove down the road, and I got up to about 50 miles an hour. I slid out of the seat, let him slide in, so that all he had to do was shift the higher gears. Didn't have to shift the other one. And he'd rattle a man, and he'd grind them and stuff like that. And when he didn't grind one, he'd say, hey, did you hear that? I didn't grind that one. <laughs> <laughs> so we headed down south, and we got down through uh, Bend, Oregon. We stopped at Jake's truck stop and had a little bit, you know, your coffee or whatever, and then we headed on down, and, and we got down to Weed, California. He said, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I said, no, Dad. You're supposed to be driving. I'm supposed to be sleeping, right? So we pulled over, and I had to make the bed, and I jammed my finger 
next to the mattress. That's when I snapped it oh, tenor on the back of my finger. Gotcha. And then I put this popsicle stick on her and taped it. Then he crawled into bed, and I drove all the way into San Leandro. Now, we get down there in front of Lucky Stores in San Leandro, California, and we're parked ready to go in. And there's a donut shop around the corner, and I go around to the donut shop, and I buy a couple dozen donuts and, a, and about a dozen cups of coffee. And I, I walk back around, and there's a bunch of garbage cans on fire or barrels. And all the lumpers, the black the black Negro lumper population there was waiting to get into to get unload all these trucks. And I set this down on the picnic table next to them. I said, all right, guys, enjoy. And they all started eating. My father looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing, right? You're giving away your food to these, you know, and he's very racist anyway. Mm-hmm. So he was really upset that I that I was giving them to the black people. And, and I said, Dad, you don't understand the business. You really don't. I mean, this is what you do. You, mm-hmm. When you're going to go into a warehouse, you want to make friends. You don't want to make enemies. And so by giving them the coffee and the donuts, these guys probably didn't have a, a breakfast when they showed up, and now they do, right? Sure, so now they're going to be they're going to be in there unloading trucks, and I'm going to be in there with my dad, going to unload my own truck. Mm-hmm. And of course, my dad's not going to help me because <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. Right? So we go in there and we back in against the door, and he has um, I had a thousand twenty nine cases of apples which were on the floor, and now I had to put them on pallets at thirty five to a pallet. Well, we start we get into it about three pallets into it, my father goes like, this is too much like work. I'm going back to bed. So he goes back into the sleeper, goes to sleep while I'm <laughs> oh, in the no. back unloading the truck. Oh, no. Learning how to do. Wow. <laughs> and he's in there sleeping, and then I get about halfway or three-quarters of the way through, and I look up, and here are a couple of the individuals I fed coffee and donuts to, and they're going like, hey, you want some help? And I said, well, if you want to help, you don't have to. And they jumped in, and they helped me. Of course, I, I slept them a few dollars, too, on top of that to get unloaded. Nice. Got it all done. We come out of there, and uh, I, I call the boss. boss says, well, I have to go down. I have, uh, like, three pickups to make, one in Watsonville, one in Salinas, another one in Exeter, California. All frozen produce hauling for the military, uh, the Army. Uh, and so... We had south. Now, my father comes out of the sleeper, and he says, uh, when are we going to pull over for breakfast? And I said, well, breakfast was a long time ago, Dad. Uh, that's, yeah. We don't stop for breakfast. We, we go down and make our, we pick up this, our, our loads, and that's what we do. And then somewhere along the line between picking up there, we'll, we'll find a roach coach or something and have breakfast that way. And that pissed them off even more. <laughs> so we get down to Watsonville, and this warehouse is open, completely open, but had no lines painted on the on the pavement where the where the doors were and my dad was talking uh you ever watched that movie uh i think it's over the top with salon oh the arm wrestling movie where, you know where the arm wrestling yeah. one you know uh-huh. that and the kid he has the kid with him and the kid's talking about it doesn't take much to be a truck driver he says and, and he turns the turns the truck over to the kid he says, okay rocket science you go ahead and drive it yeah <laughs> and he doesn't realize until he gets in he goes my god this is harder than what i thought it is yeah but that was my dad. That was what he is. He, I, I put him in the driver's seat. I said, all right, now back into any one of those doors. I'm going to go in there and get the paperwork going. And while I was in there, the people on the dock were laughing. I said, what are you laughing at? And he's looking at this guy can't back this guy. He was this way and that way and uh, never lined up. Yeah. And uh, he, he'd make about five or six runs at it. He couldn't figure it out. And I said, well, that's my dad. He thinks it doesn't take much to be a truck driver. He's a design engineer that would probably design this building, but he doesn't know how to back a truck into, yeah. the, do- into the doorway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh, I, so I go out there, and I That's go up to funny. the truck, and I, I open up the, the driver's door, and he's just sweaty. He's just pouring down sweat. <laughs> I said, what's the matter? And he says, That's uh, great. there's something wrong here. I can't, I can't, there's no lines on the pavement. There's nothing here to where to line it up on. I said, <laughs> yeah. there's lines on the pavement, Dad. Oh, you just no. don't know what you're looking for, right? And he said, what do you mean? I says, all right. Now, when they pour the driveway in here, pour all the pavement in here, there are there are expansion joints on there, aren't there? And he says, yeah, probably. And I said, don't you think they'd be parallel to the uh, building? Don't you think those are lines? And he says, he looked at me with that stupid look on his face like, oh, I guess so, you know. 
And I said, move over. And I, I, I did one turn around yeah. and I backed in, opened up the doors and, and backed up against the damn dock. And, and, uh, he's in there and I, he didn't even want to come in. He was uh, yeah, so ashamed that, <laughs> that he couldn't back the damn thing in. One of the reasons why I think I stayed with the trucking industry is because my father couldn't do it. My father was, uh, he didn't understand the trucking industry. He couldn't get, he couldn't wrap his, his little mind around it. He had this, he, he always wanted injections. He always wanted me to do something different, something that he could control. Uh, he was really yeah. that, that type of a person. Mm-hmm. That's what I had to deal with. Now, was he like that your whole life, even when you were, you know, a young teenager, kind of the same way, in that controlling way? Same way. Yeah, very controlling. Always wanted to. He was, now, I never went to college. And my father said, well, you're never going to go to college because I need you to help work the company business. And that was part of the Danish way is that the family would, would run the business. And then, of course, my brothers and sisters all went to college. I didn't go to college. I was sitting there making the money so they could go to college. Now, how was your mom? Now, one of, Did you have a good relationship with her? Oh, my mom was a very, very nice lady. And nice. She's a very good cook, and we got along pretty good. That's you know, good. And... and she was always uh, wondering what what to do with me, kind of like that. <laughs> I'd get in trouble once in a while. Keith, what am I going to do with you, kind of a thing. Yeah, I've heard that once when or it, twice. When she did punish <laughs> me, whenever I get, I get the wooden spoon if I got that. But my dad would use a belt. Oh no! I get a wooden spoon for my mom, but, but mm-hmm. that was very rare. Very rare would I ever get that. Yeah. And I think that that quit when I was like five or six. It wasn't <laughs> that didn't go much further than that now is your dad a tall but guy yeah, too because yeah. obviously yeah when were you tall even when you were younger or you like sprout up later in life what's that again i said your height i mean obviously you know mom giving you a wooden spoon but when you start shooting up to like six foot tall six two six three oh, you know, yeah, <laughs> i'll probably stop pretty well, quick <laughs> well see what happened is that my dad started the boxing club in Chilliwack, British Columbia. And he wanted us kids all to learn the trade, but he really didn't. At the same time, he was fearful that he, we did, that we would learn the trade, that we would fight back. Ah, uh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And so that that the, he, towards when we started getting a little older, he kind of deterred that we did not learn <laughs> to fight. He said, "No, you kids don't want to do that." No, you know, I remember when I was joining the, the Lesbridge Boxing Club later, when I was in my twenties, late twenties. And he said, you don't want to be a boxer. You don't want to get away from that. Because I think he feared the fact that if he got into a confrontation with me, that I would use it against him. Yeah. Now, I mentioned to you that I, I actually took Taekwondo lessons from Morris Mack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one. And and that was, uh, I know when I was doing that, he was he was questioning that, too. He said, why are you, why are you doing this? I said, well, it's, it's something different, you know, and stuff like that. But he questioned why I was learning to fight. Mm. How to defend myself and so forth. I found it found it odd that he would be concerned about that. What well, does that was, that was, was just it? He sounded like he was maybe a little. More, he wasn't really abusive. He was just more maybe a little heavy handed with the belt, but not really an exactly an abusive person. Yeah. Okay, that's what it sounds like. Well, he was he was an alcoholic. That, that yeah. he, my 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 brothers and sister asked me how come I stayed around so long, and I said, well, it's easy to easy to do when you know what you're dealing with. When I'm dealing with a drunk, I know he's drunk, and I, and I know when to stay away from him. Yeah. And that's how you learn to be around him. They didn't; they weren't around all the time, so they'd come back, and they'd see him drunk, and, and they'd be mm-hmm. like, how do I deal with him? I said, well, I learned to walk away. Yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to walk away from him because you can't get in. You can't get into an argument with him. I can't. I could play cribbage with him, and, and if I joked about cheating, he'd go all completely nuts. Oh, wow. You wouldn't cheat your old man, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but he'd still want me to count his hands for him because he didn't want to count. Oh, Even though he's a design engineer, he could he could look at all the hands. He wouldn't know what the, how many points he had in his hand. <laughs> so he'd expect me to tell him how many points it had. And if I was, and if I didn't tell him they had the exact amount, he'd swear I'm cheating. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> It's funny because people think, or a lot of people have asked me, um, you know, somebody who's a multiple offender, multiple kills, serial offender, they're like, well, he had to have been, you know, severely abused as a child, or he has head injury or brain injury. doesn't really sound like you had any of that. I mean, I would say maybe, again, a little heavy-handed, but nothing out of the normal from, you know, for a lot of people. But it really doesn't seem like it's anything you can really pinpoint and says, oh, yep, because I was, you know, 
slapped around as a kid. So, I was so, this doesn't really sound like that was your childhood at all. No, not really. Now, now here's something that's really odd. Okay, so when when he was uh, uh, in back in 1968, he bought he bought a 1968 Ford Thunderbird Landau roof, you know, 429 automatic, one of a beautiful car. In 68, it cost six thousand dollars. That's a lot of money for a car back then. But he buys this, and he's a drunk at that time, and he gets involved in an accident, and. At one point, you know, uh, he, he doesn't he doesn't talk about his accident uh, per se to big people. If us kids around the campfire, he always brought up this premonition story about driving along this highway one time, and and he got the feeling that something bad had happened along this highway, and he pulls off the side of the road, and while he's he's pulled off, and he's parked there for a short time, and cops show up and ask him what he's parked there, so well, I have something a, a bad feeling something happened there. And he, the cop explains to him, and he says that there was a guy fixing a, a, a spare tire, was changing his tire on the side of the road, and someone ran over him and killed him, and, and right at that very same spot, and and then told my dad to leave the area, kind of like that was his premonition story. Well, we kept telling this story on and on, and then in 1973, in the fall of 1973, Dad and I were camped down the Durr Road between Ellensburg and Sela next to the Umtown Creek. We're down there with a little campfire with our with, a, with his little uh, uh, RV park there, a little 22-foot uh, travel trailer. And we're just sitting around campfire. And I looked over at him, and he was drunk. And I said, Dad, uh, this premonition story, if you're so good at premonitions, why are you only dealing with the one premonition story? <laughs> and he says, he starts breaking down. He says, he breaks down. And he tells me that he was the guy in his in his car that drove by and ran over this guy oh, and killed no. him. Oh, no. And that's what he tells me when he was drunk. He says oh. so he ran over this guy, and then he looked back and saw what he did, and he rabbited. He went down someplace, and he sobered up. Then he came back later that next day, and he, he was kind of in a daze. He didn't know whether or not he really had done this or not. And he comes back, and he parks her, and he, he's contemplating what really happened, and that's when the cops showed up, supposedly. That's in his story. Well... Let's fast forward this here. So that happened in 73. In 1974, he wrecks my motorcycle, right? He drifts off the side of the road, and he wrecks my motorcycle. His story later becomes someone in a 1968 Ford Thunderbird, green in color this time, drove him off the road, ran him off the road. That was his story, hmm. that this happened, that a 68, I looked at him, I said, a 68 Ford Thunderbird, Dad, really? You need to start changing your story. Someone's going to catch on, uh. right? <laughs> you know, and this is his story. So he keeps telling the story about this 1968 Thunderbird run him off road when, in fact, he told me that he, when he drove the 68 Thunderbird, that's what he had done is run this guy off you know, Wow. Now, I asked him, I'd asked him that morning after when he sobered up, and he told me, you really need to forget what I told you the night before. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. You know, you need to make, this, make that go away. It's yeah. kind of hard to, you know, shut the gate after the horse cut out. Right? <laughs> so I've, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking my dad has, had been involved in a hit run back in 1968 or 69 or somewhere along those lines and involved in a hit run and, and the person had died. That was my understanding. I told Phelps this story uh, for his book. I don't know if he even relate the message or not, I don't know. Didn't read it. But I don't think he, ever, anybody's ever looked for to see if it was true or not, whether he's actually run over someone. Anyway. But as the story progressed right now, now, now the, the car, the 68 Thunderbird that he owned, he gave it as a wedding present to my sister Sharon when she got married. So he gave the car away. Now, he gave away a $6,000 car to my sister. I mean, gee whiz. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Why would he do that when he loved the car? I mean, yeah. why would he do it? Well, because he was involved in an accident. He wanted to get rid of it. Wow. To somebody. Mm-hmm. It was kind of crazy, you know, but yeah. So fast forward to me in prison. When he came to visit me in prison, now he's married. Now, when my mother passed away in 1985, within six months, he was married now to a Betty, uh, the one that was with or that died with him, you know, a few years later, mm. a few years ago. Okay. So my dad passed away in, in 2015. Uh, but before he he came to visit me several times, and 
when he got in here, uh, Betty, his new wife, is a Christian, so she's kind of like pushing the Bible down his throat, and he's trying to learn the Bible. And, and so he'd get on his high horse in prison here trying to tell me about thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt do that. And, and he gets on his high horse and his pedestal, and he's trying to make it sound like he's all righteous. And I'm going like, you really need to, you know, calm down, Dad. We're not talking about this. And then and when he really got on his high horse, I'd look over at him and i said, remember that 1968 Fort Thunderbird? <laughs> and he would look at me and he'd get pale because he didn't want to be in prison. He didn't like being in here with me because he thought, oh, my God, they're going to lock him in here. <laughs> he was paranoid in that. And he'd look over at his wife. He said, this uh, visit's over. we got to go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so wow. he'd get up, and, and oh, so he might have driven you know, five hours to see me. Mm-hmm. But when he got in here, he started talking to his high horse and that. He'd be talking, and uh, i got to get out of here. i got to leave here. Because he was fearful that the story would get out, and they'd arrest him and put him in here with oh, me. That's funny. Crazy. Yeah. That's so he, uh, a lot of people ask that question of whether or not that had anything to do with me being a murderer, that my dad was involved in a hit and run. Was he involved in a hit and run or not? I mean, it was always a premonition story, but he kept bringing it up. So yeah. I have to assume that something happened, whether or not the person died or not, I don't know. Yeah. But something happened along the way. It sounds like and it, yeah. It, 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 it bothered him. Yeah, definitely it sounds like it for sure. Yeah. So this is the this is what I've had to deal with with him was that uh, like I say uh, <laughs> it was surprising me he'd ask me about the Bible and I said Dad you're a design engineer you figure it out <laughs> oh that's funny oh, that's definitely yeah. too funny you had mentioned uh, when we first started talking about you know the guy you know died for like sneakers in prison. Now, we all, like from the outside, I mean, I've been involved in prison outreach forever, so I know some of the basics, some of the basic quote-unquote rules. Um, you know, again, don't call someone a bitch or, you know, don't demean anybody, don't steal, you know. But what were, did you kind of know that going in? Or were there, like, rules that you actually had to learn yourself that you know, we might not know on the outside? Um, they're, they're, the rules are respect. Hmm. This basically covers everything. You respect the person you're in prison with, even though you may not like the crime he's in prison for, but you still do not disrespect them. You mm. you don't you watch your eye contact. You don't get involved. You don't stare at somebody. You don't you don't bring your eye contact into it. Oh, okay. You don't get involved okay. in their business. You stay out of their business. You don't get involved in gambling, drugs, or anything along those lines if you don't want to get kind of caught up in all that kind of drama. Mm. There are things like when I first got here, someone came up to me and he said, well, do you want any porn? I said, no, I don't look at porn. I don't need that. Uh, do you do drugs? No, I don't do drugs. Do you smoke? No, I don't drug. I don't smoke. Is there anything that we can get you, anything you want that we can get for you? And I said, not at this time. I don't know what's available, but I'll eventually find out. But I don't want to, I don't want to gamble. I don't want to be caught in. I don't want to do any gambling. So I don't want to owe anybody anything. Now, there are things that I'm good at, like cribbage. I could play cribbage and win tournaments in here and stuff like that. I played shuffleboard, played pinochle and stuff. I played tournaments and that. But I don't gamble. I don't get into. I don't get into the football pool that they have and that that they jump on the envelopes and and gambling. You know the commodities of a prison. What's available to gamble with? So I I stay out of all of that. Yeah. And you stay away from the drama. So. Once you learn all this, you get into your own little routine and you find a few friends that you can deal with and their acquaintances, not really friends, but you, you deal with sure. them and you don't get involved in any of the politics. Everything kind of like flows along real easy. Okay. But the moment you get involved in the gambling and stuff like that, sooner or later you're going to get caught and you're going to get in a fight and you're going to argue or something along the way. Or you're going to disrespect someone and then you're going to get into another fight. And that's what usually what happens with people that first get to prison. The first five years they have a life sentence, you're beating your head up against the wall trying to figure out where you can and cannot go, what you can and cannot do. And after you've figured it all out, after about five years, you kind of mellow out and you just kind of like, uh, you, you bump along like a bumper car within the boundaries of the bumper car bumpers. And yeah. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah. Now I know most facilities, especially the California, New York areas, one I'm more that I'm ones that I'm more familiar with, is very segregated inside. 
Like, okay, if you have blacks over here, whites over here, Spanish over here, Mexican, you know, different versions of those or different gangs from them. And um, is it like that there also? Is it more pretty much because Oregon, I know it's a little bit more laid back than other, not exactly well, gangland, but every, every, every state is different. Every state prison is different than another state. Now, in California, understand that they have their groups and they have guards. They have each group has their guards to watch out for their their people there, so that no one crowds their their group. Up oh, here, okay, okay. Uh, up here, we have an open yard where everybody goes to the yard. We we have pedophiles, rapists, uh, you know, murderers, and and drug addicts. Everybody gets the yard. If you have bad paperwork up here. Chances are a gang will come up to you and charge you rent. They call it charge you mm. rent to walk the yard. So in other words, they're going to protect you if you pay them, let's say, $30 a month to keep that everyone from coming and attacking you. Like if someone was like so a, like it, killed a baby or pedophiles, like that kind of bad paperwork, you mean? like something? They look after them. Okay, gotcha. Is, when I tried to explain this to the guys in California when I was down in Riverside County, Florida, I was there asked how it was up there, and I told them, and they said, well, that wouldn't work down here. And I said, no, but it works in Oregon because that's what that's what the gangs want. They want that money coming. That's how they make their money. Sure, yeah, makes sense. The gang, but then the gangs are looking after these guys. Which I, I tell the guys up here, and I said, well, you're, this guy's paying rent to you? And I said, that means you're, you're, you're going to protect him from the other gangs beating up on him. He says... Well, uh, yeah. And I said, yeah, well, no, there's no, well, yeah, you are, you're not. I mean, if you're not, why would he pay you any money? I mean, I had, I have some of these guys come up to me and they said, well, how do we, how do we keep from having to pay this? I said, you have to grow a backbone. In other words, if the guy comes in and and they come after him and they're going to beat up on him, if he doesn't pay, he might as well take the, the ringleader on and punch him in the nose, right? And then they both go to the hole, and when they get out of the hole, the guy needs to go up there and punch the ringleader in the nose again. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and the ringleader has to understand that he's not, there's no money in it for him. Mm-hmm. So once the guy has developed, uh, re- they have to respect him because he, he stands up for himself. Well, there's a lot of these guys that don't stand up for himself anyway. I told the one guy, he said, well, you, you have to stand up and you have to, you have to hit him. He said, well, they're beating up on He'll beat up on me. I said, well, they're already beating up on you. They're already being so why why would you yeah. why would you pay? You might why are you even talking to me there? If you're not gonna stand up for yourself. Sure. I'm not gonna stand up for you either. But it makes sense where the ringleader is going I'm not gonna protect you. Well, I, mean, I, can't, I can't do this. I'm I'm a solo guy in here. I'm a serial killer. I'm not affiliated with any gangs and nobody wants to be affiliated with me. But they also respect me because I do stand up for myself. Well, even if you said the guy that uh, the ringleader, so to speak, even if the uh, we'll just call him, you know, a pedophile guy, even if he punched the ringleader in the nose, you would probably get a little beating too. Well, he's going in a hole too. So I'm assuming yeah. by that logic, even the ringleader. Well, I don't want to go. I might not get money from it. Uh, even though I'm not going, I'm not afraid of the kid. I don't want to go to the hole. So I'm, I'm going to leave him alone yeah, eventually. We have to pay a fine when we go to the hole. Oh, it's really? Not, it's not the fact that we go to the hole. It's the fact that we have to pay a fine. Oh, I never knew that. We we have to pay fines in here. If, really? if we get in trouble, they charge us a fine. Wow. So, like, if I got in a fight, I have to pay a $50 fine. Now I, now I have to pay a fine for, for getting in a fight. So when I get out, now I'm money in, in the rears. I didn't make anything on this. And then when he uh. punches me in the nose again, I have to go in the hole again and uh. pay another fine. Yeah. And so that takes care of this whole situation. Yeah. You have to grow a backbone that makes sense. in order to take care of this so that yeah. you don't get fined. Yeah, totally makes sense. And- you got to make it to where it costs them money. If you make them cost money, they don't want to deal with you anymore and they don't want to leave you alone. And that's usually yeah. how it works. Mm-hmm. But there's enough of them that don't want to fight at all and so they're, they're, they're going to pay the rent. That's what's going to happen. Oh, wow. There's certain people in here that, that pay rent just because they can't get out from underneath of the crime they are involved in. Yeah, there's enough people hate them, and they don't want uh, they don't they want to be, they they can't walk the yard without protection. Yeah, it's definitely and tough for them for sure. But you're right; it's not like that's the only way. Unless you're you know, unless you got a lot of money in your bank account, you know, like you said, you got to stand up. Well, for yourself. even with money in your, 
said, I, I knew a guy. I went to a canteen one day, and, I, and he dropped his paperwork, and I reached down and picked up his, his slip. I looked at the balance. He had over $50,000 on his inmate account, right? Fifty grand. Wow. I picked it up and I handed it to him. I said, you need to keep this to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I don't care how good your paperwork is. Some gang finds out you have that kind of money in your account. They'll beat you down just because you have that money. And he said, oh, no, they're not. I've got good paperwork. And I said, you really want to push that issue? Yeah. I'm sure not. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything, but I'm sure someone yeah. would, would, if they found out, they'd beat him down for it. And he ended up sending that money home because, yeah, someone was talking about, you know, you have that kind of money? Well, we need some of that. We yeah. need you to support us on our drugs and everything yeah. else. For sure. And that's the problem with prison. They, they, they look at... We're all victims eventually. That's you got to understand where we live. We live in a prison where it's full of people that will steal you blind just because you're there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if I if I go out of my way to help someone, they see that as a weakness. Sometimes I tell them it's not a weakness. I said I will help you, but I'm not going to go out of my way to to solve your problem for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. I can't allow myself to be that person. Sure. Now, out on the street, I was an enabler. I would, I would help people out, and I'd bend over backwards to, to make things work for people. But in here, I can't do that because it leaves me vulnerable. Yeah, that's amazing. You can be a nice guy. You can help people out on, on clothing. I, I worked in the clothing room now for 11 years, and, and I'm kind of the guy that runs the place in a way. But I I know where if the cops need something, they always come to me. Where, where's this at, Keith? You know? And so yeah. I'm kind of the guy to go to on both sides, but I do not I do not cross over certain lines. I will not do that because um, you you can talk to some guards some way and other guards the other way, and you can't talk to all of them the same. So you have to watch how you talk to the guards, and you can't walk to the, talk to the guards too long, or they, the inmates think you're a snitch. I was just going to say, I yeah, I wrote about that partly about that in my book, um, and you have to be careful too. I'd assume that. So if someone's being overly nice to you, it's like you got to think, well, because they want something in return. You did this for me. Yeah. Now I owe you. Even if it's a gesture or kindness yeah, well, of something, I it's had like. A guy, I had a guy give me a pill. He said, this pill will really fuck you up, Keith, and it's really good, right? And I'm looking at it, the pill I'm looking at. It, why would this guy give me a pill, right? I don't know him. But he thinks this is going to really mess with my head or something. <laughs> so what do I do with the pill? I go over to the toilet and I flush it. Why? Because I don't want to take a pill. I don't trust what's in that damn pill. So what happens the next morning? I get rolled up for UA, right? So this guy gives me a pill that would, would violate me on a UA. And the next morning I get a UA. So what's really going on here? That's uh, wild. That's <laughs> really crazy. You knew that. Um... He knew the test was coming <laughs> for sure. Uh, you mentioned earlier, too, that um, uh, you said you had a couple uh, trucking stores uh, that you wanted to share with everybody. And I think most people know you drove a truck. They didn't realize that, you know, that's what you mean. You're a cross-country truck driver, and I'm sure you have one or two stories <laughs> you could tell. There's a couple trucking stories I wanted to relate to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, when I was driving for Ray here trucking out of Yakima, uh, I was driving a cab over uh, Peterville, and I was parked at the there's a shell truck there's a shell truck stop on the corner of 100, uh, Highway 152 and 100 and US 101 by Gilroy, California. I don't know if you knew where that is or not, but no. there was I was parked there in a in the uh, the northwest corner. Now I think I mentioned to you that when I get parked in truck stops, I start looking around with my binoculars. I check things out, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm watching. I'm watching everything going around in the in the uh, parking lot, and it's about ten o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, over the CB radio, uh, a guy comes over the radio and hey, you with the binoculars? And then I'm thinking, well, the only reason the guy would know I had binoculars was if he had he binoculars, had binoculars, yeah. <laughs> right? So he says he starts telling me that whatever happens on his truck, that there's I shouldn't that it's none of my business, right? So there's nothing. To, I asked, so I get on the radio. I said, no, who, who the hell are you? Where are you at? So he tells me, and, and he's right in front of me about 150 feet away. He's driving this really beautiful blue T-51 
Peterbilt pulling a reefer trailer, and it's just a gorgeous truck. And he's kind of like waving at me, like. So I would I would mock him. I would I'd look like right around with the binoculars, and when I got to his truck, I'd raise up, go over the top, and come back down, and and I was antagonizing him for a little bit. But he kept telling us, "Whatever happens over here is none of my damn business." Right. Yeah. So he him and his girlfriend get out of the truck, and they go into the truck stop, and they go have breakfast. And they're in there for a while now. Don't there's a there's a parking spot available right next to his truck between his truck and me. And I saw a truck come in and it, it went around the park and looking for a place. Finally realized that was the only place he could park. So he tried to blind into this thing and he his back of his trailer hit the front of this guy's truck. Oh, he hit no. it hard. He, he dropped radiator fluid on the ground. He, oh, wow. And he realized what he did. He got back in his truck and he rabbit it. He went out on Highway 101 heading north and he's gone, right? Now, I wrote hmm. down his truck number the trucking company number, you know, I was watching out. I, I, I did look after. I did read everything. Oh, so he it. just hit and run. He just and, hit and took off. He didn't stick around at all. Yeah, he, he left. He left. Okay. He's gone. So so I got all the information. I know, you know, I got, his, I got his, his license plate number off the back of the truck. Everything, right? Number and everything. So I got this written down, and, and then I'm just waiting. And, and out comes the restaurant. This guy comes out of the restaurant with his girlfriend. And they see the truck and how damaged the front end is, and he's all pissed off, of course. And now he starts walking around, and he's asking people who saw what happened to his truck. And everybody was like, yeah, we saw something. We don't know what we saw. But you might want to ask that guy back there in the cab over, uh, uh, you know, Peterbilt back there with the binoculars. I'm sure he probably saw it. <laughs> um, <And> so he, <laughs> eventually he comes over, and he, he, he talks to the guy in the Kenworth next to me. And the guy in Kenworth said, yeah, I saw something happen. I'm not sure it is. I don't know who it was, but I'm sure the driver right away pointed right over at me and said, he probably has everything for you. So he comes over there, and he reluctantly comes to me and says, you see what happened to my truck? And I said, well, yes, I did. <laughs> and I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I, I got the name of the truck. I got the, the license number, the truck number, the trailer number, and, uh, you know, what color the truck and everything like that is. I got it all. He says, well, give it to me. And I said, I can't. He said, why not? He said, you told me to mind my own damn business. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's uh, perfect. You know, it, I, I, I don't know. So he's mad, right? He gets a, That's now, great. About a couple hundred yards up north of the truck stop is a California Highway Patrol office. So he, he jumps over Highway 152, and he runs up there to the, the police station. And he tells them that you know, there's a driver that has all the information that I need to, to track down the guy that hit my truck. You have to go tell him to give me the information. So <laughs> he comes on over and he, and he brings a cop on over and, he's, and they, they come to talking to me. And I said, listen, I'll give you the information if you give me 500 bucks. Oh, and he no. Says, Why? And I said, well, because the last time I got involved oh. in something like this, last time I got involved in this, I lost a day's wages. Hmm. And it's usually a half day getting to where I have to go to court and all that stuff. So you're going to pay me 500 bucks. You can recoup that from the guy you pick up that hit your truck. Yeah. I want 500 bucks. And you know what the cop told him? He said, pay the guy. <laughs> right? And so he's pissed off. Now he, now he didn't own the truck. So he goes into the truck stop. He calls up his boss and he says, I got a guy here who has all the information. He says, but he won't give it to me unless... I give him a thousand dollars. So he's trying to get an extra five hundred from his yeah, boss yeah, yeah, yeah. to cover this, right? That's a riot. And so he wouldn't give him a thousand dollars without talking to me. So he asked me the damn phone and he says, Well, what's going on? I said, Well, yeah, I saw everything. I said, The last time I got involved in an accident like this in a parking lot and stuff, uh, it cost me a day off and you know how that is. I said I was I'd lose a, I'd lose a whole day, and, and 500 bucks would about cover it. And he says, 500 bucks. I said, yeah, that's how much I want. He says, well, why would my driver tell me 1000 I said, well, I'm pretty sure he's trying to scalp you for $500. <laughs> you know, I think that's what he's doing. And he says, oh. So he, he gives me a comm check for 500 bucks. I get that. And then I give him the information. And within just an hour or so, they, they track down the driver and the trucking company pays for the damages. Everything. I don't have to go to court. 
you know, I got my 500, whatever, like this. But the guy that, that tried to milk him for another 500 was fired. They just that, got him out of the truck <laughs> right there. They just got rid of him. Whatever. Oh, no. So that was That's that was a, a trucking story. It's kind of crazy, but in, in dealing with I, I dealt with this before, uh, back in about 1985. I was in the... Uh, up there in North Bend, Washington, off of I-90, and I saw one driver steal a tire, uh, wheel and tire off of another company truck, same company he was with. I went in, and I, I, I got a hold of the driver that lost the tire and wheel, and I, I told him, I said, well, I saw this, and he was taken to truck number so-and-so, and I literally lost a day in court while they are trying to decide who was more credible, me or the guy that stole the damn tire. Oh, jeez. And so I didn't want to go through that again. That's why I said, "Well, you're gonna to have to pay me because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this for nothing. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna throw myself there in the wolves down there for nothing." <laughs> oh yeah, that's a right. That's kind of that. That's the deal on what you're you're dealing with trucking and stuff like that. You run into this all the time. Ugh. Crazy. Since it was so long ago, um, maybe some people just listen to the podcast maybe the you know, first you know couple times. Well, I don't, if you want to, you don't have to, but. Um, one of my favorite stories that you tell in trucking, um, I won't give it away, but let's, let's say it was a, a thumbtack story. You want to share that quick story again? Why, uh, since we're talking about trucking stories, you mean the, the, the nail, roofing nails? nails on the highway? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, that was back in, in the eighties, the mid eighties, I was working for Jerry steel supply and that's when in, in Ellensburg, the, the truck stop is now a flying J, but it was a Husky truck stop way back then. And they had a service bay in there, and a guy named Walt was, was was in the service bay. He made his commissions off of the work he made. And I come in and visit him one day, and I and and, and I was I just came from from Seattle, and I came in and and I said, Hey, Walt, how are things going? He said, I don't know if I'm going to pay ransom from this month. I'm I haven't gotten anything going on or nothing. I said, Well, why don't I go out and drum up some business for you? And he looked at me like, What the hell can you do? Right? And I said, Well, you'd be surprised what I can do. So. <laughs> I get go out in my truck and I drive back towards Clay Elm and I get up there by Elk Heights. I swing around and I park and I go back to my trailer and I had a pallet of roofing nails on the back of my trailer. And I pulled a case off the roofing nails. I brought them back into my truck and I said, the one case sitting right next to me, I opened it up and I started driving towards Ellensburg and I was taking handfuls of these nails. <laughs> As I was driving, and I was throwing them out the window as I was going on Interstate 90 heading, heading to Ellensburg. And I was driving along, and I was throwing these handfuls, and these sparks would come off these nails and things like this. And one half, and there was 50 pounds of these roofing nails I threw out on the highway. <laughs> then I got, and when I got to Ellensburg, and I pulled into the uh, tire bay there for Walt, I had two flats myself because I apparently didn't throw the nails out far enough. Right? <laughs> so I... So I get in there and he takes the t- he pulls the tires off and he, he and I pay him like, I paid him what you know thirty bucks or something like that to fix the two tires and everything he pulled out of there were these damn roofing nails pulling out of there and he had a bucket <laughs> uh, uh, you know one of these big old plastic buckets he threw all the stuff he pulls out of the tires oh, okay. and and he threw these nails into that thing and I said Walt I've got to get going I really do I got to get the hell out of here so. Uh, I'll see you later. So I leave, and I go back down to Yakima. I drop that trailer, and I grab another trailer, and I head back over to Seattle. And as I'm leaving, I'm coming up past Ellensburg on the way up to Clay Ellen again. They have Interstate 90 shut down. I'm going eastbound. They had people with flashing lights up there stopping all the traffic. And they had these little dump trucks driving up and down with magnets on the front of their truck, picking up all these damn nails. Yeah. <laughs> there were trucks and cars uh, and pickups and everything parked along the side of the highway, all along that, from Ellensburg all the way up to Elk Heights. And I'm sitting there going, like, God, I sure hope they don't know it's me. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I would talk to Walt later about, you know, about a couple of weeks later, I decided to walk, pull in there to, and, and hear the wrath of what he had to say. But he said he had a truck parked in front of him waiting to get in there to the tire bay that had 11 of his 18 tires going flat. Wow. And, and, and I looked, I looked uh, at his bucket, the big bucket with all the things, <laughs> and it was full of roofing nails. Now, did he know it that it was you? You had to get your tires changed, too, obviously. But did you tell him that was that well, you did? I, yeah, he had those nails that came out of that. But he started pulling these roofing nails out of these damn 
semi-truck tires. And and he knew the moment he started pulling them out, and, and he knew where those the first ones he pulled out were mine, he knew that's what I had done. Ah, uh, okay, he, he knew that. He wouldn't tell anybody that. <laughs> he wouldn't tell anybody that because he, he'd, be, he'd be complacent, right? He'd yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. But I came back a couple of weeks later, and I, I stopped in. And I said, well, how was... Is everything going good? Well, he was like, you son of a bitch, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's said, all right. Is it, are, you, are you busy enough? Do you want me to go out there and drum up more business? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, you leave this thing alone. I'm you, I don't need it. That was, I, he worked hard, and, and, and he made rent. I mean, he, rent for, he made rent for months. Oh, wow. that whole incident. Oh, that's One hysterical. One box of roofing nails. This stuff. Stupid. I just think it's funny. That would be documented. I mean, I'm sure someone you go back and and I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it was like 1985, 84, 85, right in there. I mean. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so if anyone's would, listening, it'd be documented <laughs> that I ninety was shut down for roofing now. <laughs> so if anybody's listening and you got a flat tire on 1985, <laughs> now you know why. <laughs> Now you know it was Keith Jesperson threw a bunch of roofing nails out to drum up business for his friend Walt. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, oh, that's hysterical. Crazy how that plays out, right? Well, there you have it. My conversation with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. Again, this is the lighter side of serial killers. So today we talked a little bit more on the lighter side of things. Uh, hopefully that gives you some insight uh, inside somebody's past and his mind who is a multiple offender. Um I get a lot of messages, you know, wanting to ask Keith's questions. So we'll continue on with Keith. Uh, I literally talk to him every couple of days. Um, he enjoys doing this, uh, and I enjoy doing it too. You know, a lot of people want to get inside the mind of a serial killer, uh, what they're thinking when they're not killing. And uh, we're going to get a lot deeper into that when you get to victims, you know, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, we're going to we'll go through all that. A lot of those have already been recorded. Uh, upload them in the coming weeks. But we got some more people to talk to. Uh, I just started talking to the cross-dressing cannibal Haddon Clark just started calling me. Uh, so we're going to get a tape an episode uh, real soon with him. More with Bruce Davis. Um, we've got more with Dana Gray coming on, Louise Turpin coming on, uh, hopefully Berkowitz in the near future. Uh, so, again, everybody, I thank you so much, all your support. Keep sharing, 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 and liking and subscribing and all that fun stuff. You know, share the podcast with everybody. Let us keep growing. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Glad you uh, are along for the ride, as they say. So until next time, see ya!